So, it's great to be with you again this morning. And uh, if you've got your Bibles on your phone or however you have your Bible, please turn to Mark chapter 11. We're going to look at the second half of Mark chapter 11 and the first half of Mark chapter 12. And those two sections connect with each other. And so we're going to look at how that happens today. But I just wanted to begin by saying uh, yesterday we had our Activate conference. As you know, we've begun to work with uh, Wayne Neuper from Germany. And they put together an online conference, and some of us met here and watched together, and uh, it was translated into 11 different languages at the same time. Isn't that amazing? And so we heard that there were people from Nepal and uh, Kathmandu and Bulgaria and uh, all over uh, listening at the same time. So we, we estimate about six, upwards of 600 people were, were um, connecting in online, which is a wonderful thing, and it was just to... Uh, connect with leaders and to help train church leaders and people that are, are leading churches all over the world. So it was a great privilege to be involved in it. And we're going to be taking some of those sessions uh, over the next while our church life here. And so we're going to be talking about various things um, over the next while. So we'd encourage you to be part of that as well in some way, and we'll make those things clear as we go forward. But... Um, it was just, a, for me, just a great joy to know that all over the world, God is building His church. And even in Nepal, God is building His church with people there. Isn't that cool? It's so wonderful to see God doing amazing, amazing things all over the world. So, this morning we're going to look at uh, the authority of Jesus and how that is uh, worked out in these two portions. Um, remember, we're looking at the last week of Jesus' life, all of these events that we're talking about happened in the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, he's entered Jerusalem, and he's on the path towards the cross and his eventual death. Uh, last week, I had a look at the power of faith, and that um, as Jesus teaches his disciples, he links the power of faith to success in prayer, and then he also connects success in prayer to our hearts of forgiveness. And that's really what I looked at last week, and I would encourage you, if you missed that message, to get online and to to listen to it because this is, it's the context of what I'm going to say this morning. And we discovered that Jesus said that simply faith is simply putting our trust, our, 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 inf, our finite, imperfect faith into the perfect faithfulness of a faithful God. That's what faith is. And we, we discovered it that last week. And so now we're going to look this morning, the Jewish Sanhedrin come to Jesus and they question his authority. They try and undermine his authority. Remember, he's just cleared the temple. He's thrown out the buyers and the sellers. And he said, my house is a house of prayer. And you've, called, you've, you've turned it into a den of thieves. And so the Jewish Sanhedrin know that they can't arrest him. And so what they try and do is they come and undermine him and challenge his authority and try to refute his teaching. And this story is really, in the whole context of, of Mark, is also important because... It focuses on one of the main issues of Mark's gospel. And one of the main themes of Mark's gospel is, who is Jesus? And if you remember some of the um, things that we've talked about over the weeks gone, uh, when Jesus does the two amazing miracles of feeding 4,000 and 5,000 people, he's amazed that after he's done those miracles, his disciples still don't recognize him for who he is, that he really is the Son of God. And so this story 
of this questioning of Jesus' authority by the Sanhedrin comes in that context, and it's an ongoing thing that develops, as you'll see in the next portions that we look at in the coming weeks. There's five little stories that all have to do with the authority of Jesus. We're going to look at one of them today. It's the parable of the tenants. It's also about the authority of Jesus. And secondly, there's um, a story that comes after that about paying taxes to Caesar. How, and, and they challenge Jesus again and say, how, how should we pay our taxes? And then they talk about, in, in, in verse 18, marriage and resurrection. And if someone dies, whose wife are they going to be when the resurrection happens? They, they speak, try and challenge Jesus with all these questions. And these are five little things that all speak about his authority. And they're all linked together. And so there's this big battle in Mark around the authority of Jesus and who he is. And here we see these little stories are all parts of that greater challenge that Jesus' authority is being challenged. So here, the context, that's the context, and we're going to look at these verses uh, from verse 27. They should come up on the screen. It says, They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you authority to do this? And Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, and he has the little addendum, they feared the people, for everyone held that John was really a prophet. So then Jesus answered, uh, so they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. On one level, this is an understandable question that the Sanhedrin asked Jesus because um, uh, he's just thrown all the, these people out of the temple. So on one level, it is understandable, but there's really no sincerity in them asking this at all. And I, I think the truth is they really, they really weren't interested in Jesus' answer anyway. And if he had given a straight answer, I'm sure they would have tried to turn it against him. And so he answers in this strange kind of way um, with a question of his own. And in asking that question and saying to them, John's baptism, was it from heaven or is it from human origin? Jesus is really saying to them in that little statement, he's really saying, my authority is the same as that of John. That's what he's really saying. He's kind of answering them, but not quite in a straight way. And so now they're caught in the horns of a dilemma because they're not wanting to publicly admit to the authority of John the baptizer. And it's interesting to think about authority a little bit as we look at this portion um, and what author true authority really is. Because in terms of biblical teaching, true authority comes from God by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. But for worldly people, authority comes largely through political power or social position or wealth or your intellectual superiority, that's largely how, political, how our power works out in the world and how authority works out in the world. And so in Jesus' day, those people that were thought to have power in that sense were people like Pontius Pilate or Caiaphas, the high priest, or the clever intellectuals. How many times doesn't the Bible describe the scribes and the Pharisees as intellectuals? 
They understood the Torah, the Mishnah. They understood it perfectly. They understood all the scriptures, but it wasn't in their hearts. And so they were the clever ones of their day. But actually, in the things of God, they had no authority whatsoever. And so authority in God's kingdom is a, ma a matter of spiritual power that comes by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus ultimately is sent by his Father in heaven, having all authority and all power. And the one who sends him allows his Holy Spirit to rest upon him. Remember, the Spirit comes down upon Jesus and rests on him like a dove. And the voice from heaven says, This is my Son, who I am well, in whom I am well pleased. And that's all the authority that Jesus needs. The authority from the Father lavished upon him and testified by the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting, uh, the older I get, uh, the, the more, more I see this to be true, that often people seem to have an interest in spiritual things, in things of faith, but rarely, at the end of the day, they only have interest in their own personal ambition. Nothing to do with the Spirit. Nothing to do with biblical authority. Just their personal ambition. As long as it works for me, it's fine. And Jesus is speaking into that this morning. And so here's the first of the five little incidents, the five little stories that all have to do with Jesus' authority. And here is a parable of a vineyard and tenants. And the, 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 the context would have been quite clear to the Jewish people because in those days, tenant farming was quite common. So what would happen is that a rich, wealthy person from a city would own a property in the country. He would rent that property to tenants who looked after that property for him, who grew crops for him. In this case, a vineyard, grew grapes, made wine, and they would share a tiny portion of the profits, and the wealthy landowner would take the lion's share of the profits. So the people would understand this picture very easily because it was how they, they, they saw it all around them. And it's, it says this, he began to speak to them in parables. We're now in chapter 12, verse 1. It says, A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a watchtower, and he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed, and he sent another servant to them. They struck the man on the head, treated him shamefully. He, st he sent still another and that one they killed. And he sent many others, and some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in, his, in our eyes. Then, verse 12, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd and so they left him and went away. What an amazing story, isn't it? 
And so often with Jesus, the things that he teaches, he's actually quoting other things. And what Jesus is doing here is quoting Isaiah. If you go and read Isaiah chapter 5, the first seven verses of Isaiah, you will see exactly the same description of a vineyard. And Jesus is referencing Isaiah 5, and they would have known that. Again, the people would have known that. And the language between these two portions is incredibly similar, and the translations, the Greek in in the New Testament uses the same language and words of Isaiah chapter 5. And in Isaiah chapter 5, the picture is simple. It's the owner of the vineyard is God, and the vineyard itself is the people of Israel. And so it's a picture they would have known very well as as, um, uh, Isaiah was taught so clearly by uh, the rabbis. And the point of Isaiah 5 is that the vineyard has been given everything that was needed, all the equipment, everything that was needed to make good wine. There was a wall that marked out the boundary to defend from robbers and wild beasts like uh, boars, for example. There was, there was a, a wine press to press out the grain, uh, the, the wine. Uh, at the end of the wine press was a vat where the, gra- the wine would have been collected. There was a tower, and the tower also was a storage place, but it's where the tenants of the vineyard lived. And so the tenants in this picture are the rulers of Israel, are the scribes and the Pharisees, and the servants, the language of servants, stands for the prophets whom God has sent over time to Israel. And so if you look throughout the Scripture, most of the major Characters of the Old Testament have been described as servants. So, for example, Moses is described as God's servant in Joshua 14, 7. Or David, 2 Samuel 3, verse 8, 18. Or if you look at any of the prophets, major prophets, Amos, Amos 3, verse 7. Jeremiah 7, 25. Zechariah 1, verse 6. All of these people are described as God's servants. And yet now... In this portion, Mark develops the story that he's quoting out of Isaiah. It's developed in a slightly different way. And the parable, the story, seems to be told quite clearly against the scribes and the Pharisees, describing them as the ones who have killed the servants that God has sent to be a blessing to Israel. And it says, verse 12 is quite clear, it says they recognize that, and because they recognize that, they look for a way to kill him. They want to do away with him. And so I want to give you this morning some very simple things that we can learn from this parable about God and about Jesus and how those things can be rich in our own lives so that we learn to be fruitful, that we can too bear much fruit in our lives. So here are some things that it tells us about God, this parable of the vineyard and the tenants. It tells us about God's generosity. I want to start there. It tells about God's generosity. Do you notice it's quite clearly stated in that parable that God gives everything that is needed for the people to produce wine and to bear fruit? Do you notice that? He gives everything that they need. He lavishes. He gives them a vineyard, a tower, a wine press, protection, boundaries, and He says, be fruitful. And in the same way, God gives us all that we need for fruitfulness in our lives. He is generous to us in every way. He gives us all that we need. The Scripture says we have all that we need to live a life of godliness and of power by the Holy Spirit, and it's lavished upon us by the grace of God. God is generous. You notice that? That's the first thing. Secondly, it also tells us about God's trust. 
He trusts us completely. Do you notice that? It says the owner gives what they need and he goes away and he says, get on with it. Now, I want to just say something about the sovereignty of God. Because often I hear this, that people don't like the language when I say God is in control, they don't like it. They think that that means that God controls every tiny little aspect of their lives. That's not how the Bible teaches sovereignty. The Bible teaches sovereignty in the following way. That God is in control in this sense that every decision that you make in the freedom that you have, He takes your decisions and the choices that you make with your life, the good ones, the bad ones, and the indifferent ones, and over the course of your life, He works all of those things together for good for you. That is what the sovereignty of God is. It's not God, sovereign God does not control your every step. In God's economy, you have incredible freedom. But God's kindness in your life will, over the course of your life, make sure that all of those things work together for good for your life. That is an incredible foundation of my life that makes me want to just shout with joy, knowing that God is kind to me in every way. And no matter what happens under my life are the hands of a sovereign Father who's upholding me as a son. That is such good news. Otherwise, if you don't believe that, you walk around saying, am I going to make a mistake? Does God love me when I make a mistake? Am I going to lose my salvation if I do this? No. That's not, that's not the life that God has for you. He has a joyful, abundant, glorious life for you that you live with freedom. And He molds and makes the most incredible tapestry of your life over the course that you look back and you say, has God not been good to me? Okay, can someone say amen? Or else I feel like I'm just preaching to myself. Tells us of God's trust. It tells about, thirdly, it tells us about His patience. Do you notice? He sends people over and over and over again. Not once, not twice, dozens of times. He sends servants, and He trusts that the servants will be heard. In the same way, how much patience doesn't God show in our lives? Over and over again when we mess up. His grace comes again, and He restores us, and He upholds us. He says, my son, I'm with you. Give it another try. And we do. And lastly, it tells us the ultimate triumph of God's justice. Do you notice that? There comes a time when justice comes for those that have not been faithful, those that have killed the servants. There comes a time when Jesus, God says this, enough. It's finished now. And there is ultimately for us as Christians that knowledge that there will be a time of justice where there will be a reckoning. And for those that are in Christ, there's no judgment. Our sin is taken away. But for those that are not in Christ, there will be judgment. And the Bible clearly teaches that. And we mustn't shy away from that as Christians. you know that Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else? Go and read the, 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 the Gospels. We don't like that language, do we? Because then the people say, oh, well, God's angry and He's unkind. No, well, well, actually, the Bible teaches both. It teaches the incredible kindness of God, but it also says for those that are in, not in Christ, there is judgment that will come and that evil will end. It won't carry on and on and on. There will be a time when it ends and all things will be made new. Amen. Secondly, this parable not only tells us about God, it tells us something about Jesus. I've got a couple of things for you to think about. It tells us that Jesus is the greatest of God's servants. Do you notice that? The, uh, the picture's quite clear. Israel, 
Um, it's described as the vineyard. God is the absent owner. He sends the workers to collect the fruits, and these servants are rejected one by one. And in the end, he sends a servant who's the greatest servant of all, who really is in his own category altogether, but describes himself as a servant. Jesus says of himself, I've come not to be the master, I've come to be a servant of all. So Jesus understands he's in a category all of his own, He's, a, he's, he's not like all the other servants, but he's come ultimately as a servant to serve and give himself for the world. And so he understands Jesus comes in the line of all the servants because God wants fruitfulness from his people and he's given them all that they need. He's given them redemption. He's given them a tabernacle. He's given them the law. He's given them the prophets. He's even given John the Baptist in their recent history and they killed John, John the Baptist. He's given them all they need. And now ultimately he gives them the servant who is above every other servant. He gives them Jesus. And thirdly, it tells us Jesus is not only a servant like no other, it tells us that Jesus is also God's son. Here Jesus directly makes a claim that he is the son of God. People have said to me, but Jesus doesn't really say he's the son of God. Actually, read the scripture, he does. Here he says plainly he is the son of God. He makes that claim that no one else has made. And so he's the most reliable of all the servants. He's the owner's son, and here he claims this unique title for himself. And it tells us also, fourthly, that Jesus is someone who's destined to be killed. Uh, he's already predicted his own death, and we see that clearly in the parable. And um, in Mark 10, 45, he says this of, uh, Jesus says this of himself, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus again points to his impending death through this parable that we clearly see. And also it tells us that ultimately Jesus is the measure of God's judgment. And this is what I mean. Um, it says in the parable that if the own owner comes back, he'll find out what the tenants have done and that he's been robbed and misused in every way and the tenants will be punished. So Jesus also this is not only speaking ultimately of that day of judgment. He's also speaking prophetically about the judgment that's going to come upon Israel and upon the city of Jerusalem in AD 70. He's really speaking about that, uh, which, is, which is to come. And uh, lastly, this beautiful, beautiful portion again out of Isaiah, where Jesus claims that the stone that the builders are rejecting is the most important stone of all. And again, he's pointing towards himself. Isaiah 26, uh, 16 says this, Sorry, 28.16 says this. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. And I've always quoted that, and I've never seen this little portion, which is so appropriate for us right now. It says this. It goes on to say, The one who relies on it, that's the capstone, the cornerstone, will never be stricken with panic. Isn't that amazing? If you rely on the cornerstone, if you make the cornerstone your foundation, you will never be stricken with panic. That's why we can preach and live confidently at this time and say, we don't need to panic about this stuff. Why? Because our lives are built on the cornerstone. Our lives are built on the sure foundation. We don't have to panic. It's a promise from the Lord for you and for me. Amen. That's such good news. Anyway, all right. So, yeah, the picture is the building being built. The large stone is the most important cornerstone, the foundation. 
And Jesus claims for himself that he is God's stone. He is the most important, the foundation of salvation. He is the sure foundation that anyone who believes in him can build the rest of their lives confidently upon that foundation. And he will keep us through the storm. He will enable us to, to ride the wave, to surf the wave. Whatever the storm is, we can do that because our lives are built on that foundation. But the simple point of the story is that the builders, the religious experts of the day, thought they were the experts of what was happening, but they were rejecting the most important part of God's salvation story, the cornerstone. They weren't even acknowledging the cornerstone. That brings me finally to my final point this morning, that Jesus, who is the chief stone, ultimately is the most important stone of the entire part of God's salvation story. He's the most important part. And Jesus, who's being rejected by the religious leaders of the day, is act actually, actually being blessed by his Father, who's accepting all that he's doing. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, they hope that they can get rid of Jesus, that his kingdom will be forgotten. But the Father is using Jesus. He's establishing him as the cornerstone of a kingdom that will have no end. The religious leaders think, well, if we kill Jesus a couple of years from now, no one will even uh, think about him anymore. And yet the Father knows that through the power of the Holy Spirit, what he's doing through the life of his Son is going to build a foundation of a kingdom and a church of, against whom the gates of hell will not prevail and his kingdom will know no end. It is absolutely incredible. And so, in conclusion, Jesus really has answered the question of chapter 11, verse 29, by whose authority do you do these things? He's given two answers, really. One is indirect, and the other is this parable. And they didn't like either of the answers. <laughs> they didn't like what Jesus said. So he answers them twice. They don't like it. They still plan to kill him. So in, really, in asking of their question about his authority, they really are rejecting his authority at the same time. And yet he is building this kingdom that will have no end. And so my simple encouragement to you this morning, as, 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 uh, the, perhaps you don't know Jesus this morning, perhaps you, you've never uh, thought about him as, as the cornerstone of your life, but I want to ask you this this morning. Uh, how do you recognize the authority of, authority of Jesus in your own life? Do you acknowledge him as having authority over your life as he has authority over all creation? Is he the sure foundation of your life? Is he the cornerstone or is he just like an addition? <laughs> you know, your life is your building and you're adding on a little extension. And the little extension is your kind of religious kind of faith bit. It's the little extension on you, onto your conservatory. Not the foundation of the whole building. Just the little addition and you kind of go there when you want to go there, and when you don't feel like going there, you don't go there. You know, Jesus is part of it, but doesn't disturb it too much. You know, he's welcome in the house as long as he stays in the addition on the conservatory, not the foundation. Is he the cornerstone? Are you building your life around him? Are, is he, are you allowing him to lay into your soul, into your very core, that foundation, that rock of who he is? that you can build everything else on top and know that it's going to prevail. He's given you all that you need. He's given me all that I need to be fruitful and to live a godly life, to produce much wine, to be fruitful, 
that other people can eat and drink of what is being produced of your life and say there's a good God in heaven. I see grace upon your life. I see, I see faith upon your life, and I want a taste of that very thing that you are producing. Well, will you welcome him? Will you welcome him deep into the foundation of who you are that you can produce fruit by the power of the Spirit that will be a blessing to other people? See, I, I, I'm convinced this is what God has for all of us, for you and for me, but we have to make him the cornerstone. He must be the foundation. He must be the very most important thing that we build on. It can't just be an addition somewhere out there. It has to be the cornerstone. Is he the cornerstone for you? Is he the cornerstone for me? I want to encourage you to think about that this week to allow him to speak to you, allow him to see where you need to adjust. I'm not accusing anyone this morning. It's a great challenge to me as I'm, I'm preaching that myself. How much is he the cornerstone of my life? And how much am I allowing him to lay deep foundations into who I am that is going to produce fruit for other people? Amen. Can we pray? And we are finished on time this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to thank you for the power of your spirits. I want to thank you for your amazing, amazing teaching that brought life to people so many thousands of years ago, but Lord, it still brings life to us today. Holy Spirit, I want to thank you that you are here. I want to pray, Lord, that you take these words this morning and that you would Seal them in our hearts, that truly we would do all that we can by the power of your Spirit, that you might become the cornerstone in every way. You might become the sure foundation upon which we build everything, knowing that that confidence comes, that we will not be shaken when we are built upon the cornerstone of Jesus. And we trust you for that. And I pray for every single person here this morning, Lord, for those watching online at home. God, we ask that you would come. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. We ask you to change us. We ask you to give us wisdom that you help us see what needs to be transformed in our own lives so that we can produce much fruit for you that will be a blessing to everybody who tastes of our lives, that we will be a living evidence of grace and your faithfulness through how we live. And we trust you for this in the precious, precious name of Jesus. Everyone says... Amen.